This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Is there anything, anything at all, gentlemen, oh, that have caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, I, no, I'm not. Baseball, no, yes, baseball, but I don't, I think we have to give the respect that's due to the Women's World Cup yeah. and talk about that. And there are a couple of things that caught my eye about the game. The first one had to do with the well. First of all, the U.S. women won, which was fantastic. It's you know, it was more of a coin flip. Actually, if you watch that game, it was more of a coin flip than the odds were giving it. I know they won two nothing. The first well, goal though was on penalty kicks. They had it as U.S. was about a seventy thirty favorite. The betting line. Huh. What do you mean it was more of a coin flip? You're arguing that it should have been. That it, was it, over. It was, it was more random. The, the game. The fact was, that they won was more random than something like seventy thirty. Would suggest. Yeah. What do you think the ex post probability would have been? What do you mean by ex post? After the game, after you watch the game, oh, after I watch the, the game, yeah. yeah. Or, if you, or if you analytically looked at the stats and said, uh, you know, across all games that look like this, the, t- the chances that U.S. won this war. Are... I would say the following: until the penalty kick happened, which I wanted to talk about it because of the use of replay and the fact that now replay is going to be in the NBA, and I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on how you think replay will actually affect. It's going to be expanded in football too. All right, so there's lots of sports. I thought that um, it was an even game at best. As a matter of fact, I thought in the second half of the game, up until that point, the Netherlands actually had played a superior game in the second part. As a matter of fact, the advanced stats all support that as well. They looked better. The U.S. looked better the first 30 minutes of the game. The Netherlands looked better the second 30 minutes. I would say up to that penalty kick, I would say it was an even game at best for the U.S. just to give some context, did you watch the U.S.-France game as well? I did. I watched yeah. U.S.-France. I watched U.S.-England. Did you I, kind of feel like that one? Because that one ended up... I thought up, the U.S. was, was the inferior similar, team in that game. Yeah, no, that was a, also a 2 nothing game. Um, and that was, that was a, a, at least on paper, supposed to be the closest game of the tournament. Was that 2-1 or 2-1? Oh, it might have been, yeah, no, France did score one near the end. But anyway. So, um, so help, help me with, uh, I'm sorry, these advanced stats things. Yeah, what so advanced eyes, stats? You guys eyes, are just talking out of your well, asses my old, on this one, My right? old school. Hey, I, 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 <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, you the advanced stats, but go ahead. My old school traditional way of watching soccer is how many shots on goals exactly. were there? How many crazy stops did the goalie have to make? And yeah. I didn't see any that the U.S. goalie had to make. And heck, the Netherlands goaltender was blocking things with her waist accidentally. And this happened multiple times. And so, I, look, I'm being facetious, of course, but to the Rube, it did not look like there was even or much less than Netherlands played. Or, or I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll actually – I'm kind of on your guys' side, even though I asked about that U.S.-France game, because soccer is never at, – at, at, like, the World Cup level, is soccer is never anything – I think it's usually very close to a coin flip, right? I mean, the U.S. dominated in this tournament, both in that game and, and, and across the tournament, more than any – men's team ever has, right? I mean, no, they, it, they were literally never behind the entire kind, yeah. tournament. I don't think they were They were not behind. Deficit. Matter of fact, the Netherlands had never been tournament. behind until the U.S. scored that penalty kick as well. Right. But yes, so, they were never there's behind. There's a lot of variance in soccer. The best teams are clearly much better than the others. But the problem that I have as a rube following up with, with Cade is that I just don't see... There seems to be a better team here, but when I watch it, 
it doesn't. Uh, it's not obvious to me why there's a better team, but yeah, it is that's because we're rubes. Because we're rubes. Yeah. But no, but nobody can really point to it. And they don't, there's Eric's no data set. To, what's, the, what's, the, what's the what's the advanced stats? There are advanced stats. What's the advanced stats? Capture this. Shots on goal. That's not advanced. No, no, that's not advanced stat. It's it's. What's your advanced stat? Well, so I'll tell you the data that I saw. So I saw. I mean, I don't know how advanced this is as well, but it was speed of pass, time of possession. It was um, number of opportunities. It was number of uh, fouls. And maybe those are medium level stats. Yeah. They're not advanced. Yeah. Again, the first 30 minutes of the game, the U.S. controlled it. The second 30 minutes of the game, the Netherlands was leading on all right. of those stats up until, again, you could slice, any, you could slice any event. advanced stats that would illuminate, I think, this mm-hmm. and, and, and kind of actually be more predictive of winning is stuff like how much, you know, of the field does your kind of like, Correct. Do, do your players you zone own. out or control? How much, how many legitimate scoring chances let me, there are? Okay, let me give you a U.S. Few. had more legitimate let, scoring let chances. Give, let me give you a few because, because Matty Diaz just fed us some. So the U.S. created more big chances. This is what no I doubt was about it. quoting. No doubt about it. Quoting 4-0. Made 30 more passes in the attacking third. Yeah. I think that's helpful because when you're watching the, the thing, they're showing time of possession, 55 to 45. They're showing number of passes, 200 to 180. And you're like, well, it's kind of getting washed out. But in the attacking third, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Completed more passes in completed passes in the penalty area. Now we're really helpful. They're seven to zero there. Okay. Because that's really yeah, probably yeah, highly yeah. related to opportunities. And then created more chances generally than their opponents in orange. So created with 12 to 3 in creating chances. Now, I'm these, not sure what these, that is, it, but that sounds good. These stats that you're quoting, I, I assume, are just are, are ma- essentially manually tabulated by somebody watching the feed, right? I There's not an automated... We, yeah. we don't yet have really kind of an automated... I'm, I mean, I'm some sure of those, they could do completed, yeah. completed passes by area automatically. I'm not sure that I'm they sh- did, but I'm yeah. sure you can. Because you were getting live updates on that during the game. I mean, saying yeah. there were live updates on a number of these stats during well, the game. Well, yeah, but I mean, but things like complete passes and penalty area, I mean, yeah, you, you can use a human live update that relatively quickly. So I think the one thing those stats say to me, but again, I'm no expert in soccer, is that the U.S. backline defense was far superior than the Netherlands backline defense. As a matter of fact, there was a player in the U.S. team, I think her last name is Dunn, was, I mean, I've never seen somebody more all over the field, like in every play. Mm -hmm. Like if you actually, like this player on the U.S. team basically stopped at the midfield, every single attack by the Netherlands. So the Netherlands right. just could not get the ball, like essentially into a great scoring opportunity. And so there was an example where she didn't come up in the stats. She didn't score in nope, the game. No, you didn't see her. Yep. She didn't. No, no. If you, you watch her, but, the game, yeah. she she didn't score. She. I don't know if they have something like passes yeah. deflected or balls stolen yeah, or they, something it, like. It, and in the different parts of the field, I think that's a really nice. They, we know they have that. Well, we're being such idiots, of course. And you know. We have these conversations every six months with some soccer person, and then we all forget them because well, we don't watch the dang sport. But we know that this stuff exists. It, it, it slowly is evolving. It's slowly, but if you if you recall when we began our show, however, however many years ago yeah. that was, that was during the, the World Cup, and there were these. I it remember five. There were. I remember these box scores were being published in the right. newspapers yeah. describing the two games, and you'd look at them and like you can't see who won the game from that box score. Yeah. You know, they look one team that's with a, a better. No, and and I, mean, I think that's evolved since yeah, then. Yeah, no, it. Yeah. 
has, and I mean, we're going to stay rubes about soccer. I think probably in general. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we're we're working on, but I mean, as rubes about soccer, we're actually a pretty good bellwether for how these advanced stats right. are kind of good. pervading yeah. things like the telecasts and stuff like that. Good and right. and I think in in the five years we've been doing this show, things have definitely Rude. advanced. Actually, the reason I brought up soccer actually had nothing to do pretty much with the outcome of the game. I just wanted your guys' opinion on how you thought replay was going to actually change various sports because yeah. again. Um, there was a the penalty was done by the referee going there was a foul called then the referee went over to the monitor which would never have been done in past World Cups watched a video of it there was somebody in New York watching the video of it and they both determined that it was a penalty and it, by the way it was a penalty she kicked her you know basically in the shoulder so that was a penalty yeah, never touched the I, ball I just, I, but I were... just thought and then I'm thinking basketball just announced that coaches are going to be able to have one challenge a game we know tennis you get a certain number of challenges you just said the NFL is expanding yeah, replay and, and, we know MLB now has a challenge system I'm just wondering is that going to help the game in some way or hurt the game in some I, way? I mean, I th- in the grand sense, I think getting things right, slowing things down, getting things right helps the game. But I, I worry. I mean, the soccer one. It's such a the part fo- of the game. And, and the, you, the, NFL, the NFL <laughs> one is are both like, you know, worrisome to me because, you know, contact like that happens a lot. And I mean the NFL now the, the the new NFL penalties where you're going to be able to challenge you know, a pass interference challenge pass interference. I mean I, we obviously know why that rule is coming in, right? Yes, because of some very recent egregious calls. But you know it's the type of thing where like you mean the Super Bowl in- the Saints should have won? I mean, I mean what? <laughs> sorry, well, they, sorry. Were lo- they were lost in the Super Bowl. Oh, anyway, of course, but, you know, of course. Uh, they should have at least been in, in the yeah, Super Bowl. That's yeah, fair, that's fair. To lose, um, but. I, I just think with something like pass interference or holding or, or these or these things that happen essentially on every play, it's it, it's going to be you know it, it's it, it so could it's be a formidable trans- challenge it, it, it to figure out how it's going to work. Challenge yeah. in that case could just be like I want this play done over. Well, the problem you have is also it's the objectivity. Like for example, in the NBA, let's imagine you challenge a goaltending call. I mean, if the ball's already hit the backboard, that's viewable. Yeah. If the ball is on its way down, we could argue there's some subjectivity there. If the guy's foot is in the defensive circle, so it should be a charge, that's viewable. The NFL, that's what concerns me, is that they're viewable, but it's, yeah, it's and, just and, and it's a subjective and, and I mean, it's challenge. Really, now, I'm, now a referee but let me, gets let me, the let second, me a second referee Can or I, something. Let me, I want to get your opinion on this, because each sport has a kind of a comfortable background of violating the rules that everybody's kind of happy yeah. with. Right. And that's what bothers me. You see right. in basketball, yeah. there's a lot of pushing, and in football, yeah. there's, I mean, apparently there's holding on every play, if you ask yeah. people. And, you know, baseball's pretty clean, and I can see how that sort of works out, but soccer, there's all this pushing and shoving and kicking yeah. and, yes. and Any acting. sport with a lot of physical contact yeah. has sort of a permissible amount of physical right. contact and that is somewhat subjectively defined and once you slow it down to like every microsecond i don't know exactly how you i think you have to allow how you maintain that so kind you, of yeah. so you ha- i think you need a, a, a cushion essentially and you yeah. and you say you only overturn this when it's so egregious but right. then it, then that is so egregious is that and you know that that just Puts the subjectivity of that's referee right. judgment. Yeah, but that makes, that makes it, it pretty even clear. more. Probably. So yeah. in baseball, and I think this is true, it has to clearly, undeniably violate what the call on the on the field. So if it looks even close, they'll yeah. keep it on the field. They keep yeah. it. I mean, you see this like a lot even in close. Even, it, yeah. it's like, you'll see it and it goes. I think that was out. You know, we called him safe, but it's not so clear that you can overturn yeah. it. And, 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 but and, let me and, say and, what I love about it from an analytics perspective. 
especially so, so what they're... Can, can we sorry. stay with this for just a quick second? Because I think... No, I was going to stay with that. <laughs> but just, I just want to underscore it because we're saying this thing that's hard and theoretically, you know, yes, it's very hard to get it exactly right. But no one talks about it with this spirit because like, I mean, the one I'm most familiar with is football. You're still trying to figure out, was it right or not? Like you're, re- you're really looking real close and it doesn't matter how hard it is. What you want to know is, is it correct or not? And what we're talking about is a philosophy that says, no, your first judgment is how close is the call? And if it's sufficiently close, you just say it's, it's fine. Whatever happened yep. on the field, happened. we're not going to try to determine right. what yeah. side of the line. It's just if it's the first judgment is how close is it, and no one talks about it that way. Yes. And philosophically, that's probably where we need to go. Well, I want to give right. I want to sh- give a shout out here to Adi for something that will become part of this in the NBA. And let me say why you've talked for the last five years about what you call high leverage situations. If you think about it in the NBA, let's be clear what the new rule is. You get one opportunity to challenge, regardless of whether you're correct or not. So now, as a coach, when do you use this? Oh, you save no, it until no. the last 10 well, seconds well, or something. Or, but then maybe you never use it. Yeah. That's right. So this That's is a right. fascinating right. mathematics yeah. problem about when do you use your challenge? Because, you know, you use it with, say, two minutes left. I'll make it up. Uh, LeBron James fouls out with two minutes left. Okay, well, maybe it wasn't a foul. All right, that's a pretty good time maybe to use it. But suppose then there is a play in the last 10 seconds that gets called the wrong way, which you've already used yeah. your challenge. Now, do you I, get That's a, the part I'm most intrigued. Let me ask you a question. Like in baseball, if you use your challenge and it's successful, you get another. No. Not true. Not true in basketball. You no. Mean, one challenge. One challenge. That's one challenge. It, correct or so incorrect. That's, that's very difficult because in baseball, it's been well documented that they do not challenge enough. And essentially what happens in the first inning, they, they sit on it. And yeah. they shouldn't. They should use every – because in baseball, it gets renewed. If it's right, it gets See, renewed. See, I knew you'd get so, – you, yeah, I knew this, this would get you excited. This is a well, very well, tough well, question. Well, empirically, <laughs> what's the number of uh, like challenges used per game? Now, in I don't actually don't know the answer. I don't know if you know. There's a database. On I, I, I would guess. I would assume it's like less than one per it's team. About, it's right? about one per team. It's about um, one per team. I think actually, it's about wow. Less, yeah. Okay, but yeah. it's, what's interesting about it is that you'll see them early, and that the, they don't use them. They yeah. really just don't. They don't get the. And you're the. This is what you pointed out, which is that if you don't use it. And the first chance you might not ever have a chance to use yeah. it, and you don't want to let them sit. They matter. I think tennis has it pretty well as well. I mean, tennis obviously has well, a, now a challenge system. You get, I forget, like four or five challenges. You get it. You get to keep them if you get it wrong. I mean, if yeah, you get it right. Yeah, tennis. I mean, not to take away from the achievements of, but it's it's easier because you're just really. It's about a ball and no, a that's line. That's what I just said. I said, you know, the good thing yes. about the replay system, no, I said, yeah. I'm much more favorable about it when it's an objective yeah. thing. Yeah. Like, the ball's on the line or it isn't. And, right? and, and I think with It's the, very different in right. the NFL. And I think, you know, generally, as we're sort of talking about, with the contact sports, it's there's not going to be any... It's harder to define objectivity there. Wharton Moneyball got the whole crew in here. Adi, Eric, Shane, and Cade. You guys can join us. one 844 Wharton. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or hit us up on... Twitter at W Moneyball. We've been talking women's soccer and VAR video replay. I know there was a little baseball last night. I felt very un-American for not watching the All-Star game. You guys must have been taking it in. Well, we did take it in. I watched the mm-hmm. All-Star game. I didn't quite make it. It was a, to the very end because I got it very early and I unfortunately un- unanticipated for, fell asleep. But it was a great game. It was 4-3 to three in the end. American League won. They seemed to cycle through the players very quickly, which I don't remember them doing that. There, there was, a, in, in historical times, Guys the starters play, would it, play the entire game. Like Ted Williams would, would end the game in the ninth or 10th inning. And, and you no, know, no, why is he still but doing But even in our childhood, you see yeah. the starters play four or five Three, four, innings, yeah. Yeah. somewhere in that range, because right. they wanted to get everybody in and everything yeah, But by else. the seventh inning yesterday, every every position player was used by the National League. And in fact, they have a new rule, which means you can bring one back 
If, oh, really? If, yes. You can bring somebody back if there's an injury or that goes extra innings or extra long. Oh, that's yeah. good because it allows you to then be a little bit that, less conservative. That's I, right. just re- I just don't remember the rule anymore. Does the team, does the, does the league that wins the All-Star game get something? Oh, my God. I hate that rule. Is it I don't still, think so. No, it's, they took that away. They got rid of that. Okay. It's back to alternating year to year, yeah. I think. Okay, because it was about that the World the Series, most, right? Oh, that was my the goodness. Mo- remember the one that ended in a tie? players? That's ridiculous. But what is interesting to me about the All-Star game is two things first of all it's got it's it's dominated by young players and that is that is absolutely yeah. apparently freddie freeman who's 30 years old was the oldest starting player in the national league that's crazy freddie freeman mm-hmm. he's not i mean nope. he was the oldest starting player in the national league hmm. well I verlander of course was guy. the oldest I mean, in the american league. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't mean pitch i was just <laughs> yeah. saying position yeah, position, player. position player. And, and this is a this represents a, an incredible vast change in baseball and and usually all-stars there was so much of just Fans just warding the perennial star mm-hmm. their position. I mean, I remember. Well, Derek, Jeter. Derek, Jeter. Derek Jeter I was even year. going yeah. to say you can't say Derek Jeter, one of the greats of all time. I can say it though. But they, but he didn't deserve it. The last probably four or five seasons he played. Yeah, yeah. So now we're how looking... many of his gold gloves did he deserve? <laughs> Not many. But bottom line is, is that you're seeing a, a, a real youth movement yeah. in baseball, and I think you probably and it's it's something that's very odd, well, and you have to ask yourself well, is why. It odd. Well, or is it? odd or was it just sort of like was that youth movement always going to happen it was just kind of held well, off by some artificial thing that made the older players better than they should have been no, as no, they aged no no i'm going to i'm going to if you look at who's actually performing i mean these young star, stars yeah. are just dominating well, so, the game in the uh, way that i don't yeah. think they ever i wanted did. to ask you guys a question because there's been a lot going on in sports in general about age recently in the following way you know, relating to, we obviously just saw a 15-year-old female women's tennis player, Coco Goff, make it to the fourth round of Wilmington, Wimbledon, the fourth, the youngest player since Jennifer Capriati in 1991 to make it that far. Oh, wow. But we also have, obviously, on the men's side, we still have soon-to-be 38-year-old Federer playing, you know, playing for the semifinals. And so what's interesting, to your point, Adi, is we're actually seeing, I'll call it success at both ends of the right. distribution now. A 20-year-old just won last week's golf tournament. It was his. I think it was his right. first tournament he ever played. Eagling the seventy second hole from the right. from the from the fairway. Right, he eagled the seventy second hole. A twenty year old just won That's the, the golf tournament. So yep. what we're seeing now is we're seeing a lot of young players, if you'd like, succeed. But we're also still seeing the. Now we're seeing even a longer right tail. Right, of players. I, think, I think there's, two, but there are two competing factors that are that are yeah. dri- driving both of them. So that the high end is maintained by nutrition, by sports science. I mean the old end, the old end, yeah. by by more money, so they don't have to play as much and they can figure out how to rest it out. We're seeing that particularly in tennis. I'm not sure we're seeing longevity in football with one person accepting. Um, <laughs> but in baseball, more, you're more, more than uh, one to be fair. But there are a few. They're all hey, quarterbacks. You, can, they're we, all quarterbacks. Do, can we yeah, just take, right. take one quick aside? Yeah, uh, Tom Brady fact of the week. Oh, um, okay. Oh, thank you, Shane. We're, we were no. hoping you would do that. No, <laughs> I appreciate it. I try to come in with the Tom Brady fact every week. This one is Tom Brady is fact, actually is that facts and quotes, by the way? second in all time um, in receiving yards for uh, players over 40 years old. <laughs> Jerry good. Rice Jerry Rice has about 2,000 or so. Tom Brady has six. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> and then the third, there you pl- go. third place is zero. But so, the, so, so on the other side, so getting back to the other side, the youth movement is, one asks, why is this happening? First, you have to ask, is it real? And I really think it is genuine. It's not like, it's not like I'm, we're misremembering I have, I have this. one hypothesis. In, ga- in sports where the game actually is kind of by, you know, st- you know kind of, Smart standards 
evolving quickly or yes. changing. Yes. 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 Youth, you know, the players, the young players are the ones that are sort of most adapted and selected for yes. those yep. like improvements. And, 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 and in baseball, and I think it's you launch it. angle and it's yep. like, you know, all this other and so stuff. Let's, so let's bring it back to the, the other event that happened before the All-Star Game, which is the Home Run Derby, which yeah, is unbelievably right. exciting. I think it's now the main event of the oh, All-Star Game. definitely weekend. the main event. The tickets are more expensive for are that more, than they are than for the, the game. And it's because of the format. It's this bracket format and this you have this four minute ha- hit as, as many as you can. As opposed to swing and miss, swing, ten swings. Exactly. And, you know, it's ten it's extremely exciting. Very so exciting. even so, and that that's very. But you see these youth, these kids, and they're. I mean, Guerrero is twenty, right? And they have this modern and a, swing, and a rookie won it, and a right? rookie, a rookie won it. Yes, exactly. And he, was, and he was the betting favorite coming in. He was the betting favorite, and this guy wasn't even drafted. So this is a guy yeah. who came from nowhere forty five years ago. Oh, really? To went to college, and then is now this the star first baseman. You mean he wasn't drafted out of high school? Out of high school, he yeah, wasn't yeah. drafted out of high school, okay. which is usually even players who are who eventually go to college are generally drafted out of high school. There's 40 rounds, right? So you're yeah, not in the right. top 1,500 college right. high school players. That's, right. That seems astounding. But if you look at the way they swing, they swing in this modern way where the bot, the bat gets down, it's on plane for a long yeah. time, and it has this, this uppercut to it, which meets the ball at the angle that it's coming in. And what you were seeing in terms of yeah. distance and power is just the most amazing, amazing person. If you're a 33-year-old, you're not going to, you know, this is some new advance that. that actually has improved. Right. The, you know, you're not going to be able to adapt to that. I actually thought the most amazing hitter was Acuna. Who didn't win? But I mean, he hit home runs to every single. Every field. I think yeah, he had the it, largest, uh, highest like uh, speed off the bat. I yep. think of everybody. He did. Yeah, I was just looking he at the fact that I'm pretty sure. I'm, maybe I'm exact. It looked like half of his home runs were actually to the opposite yeah. field, and the part is wherever the ball, wherever the ball was ball pitched, he, if it was away, he would hit it to the opposite That's right. field. But it was interesting. One of the com- one of the commenters actually listened to the Statcast broadcast. So ESPN had two broadcasts. They oh, had their God. regular broadcast, and then <laughs> yeah. they had their, yeah, their, yeah, their, their Statcast, their Statcast broadcast with their Mike this is like a Derivative of a derivative. It is, <laughs> but it was on a second <laughs> was, channel. It was, it was ESPN on a second and ESPN too. No, I mean, no, I mean, no, it. So one of the derivative wasn't derogatory. No, I know that. But so the observation was it actually were sixteen players in the tournament there was the eight batters and their eight pitchers yeah. and oh, Matt Chapman was, it was really it was almost sad his dad was pitching to him, which is such a beautiful image but he was throwing sliders yeah <laughs> it's just right. not what you not want not intentionally but it was just it was terrible pitching he just couldn't hit the ball it was so many balls that were down and away yeah. that is, that's, hor- that's a crime that's horrible that and Matt, crime. Matt hit it one of the furthest I think he hit them in the few short opportunities like that he had like 470 something he hit right? some of the longest yeah. balls of the night so he really had his, had his game he's a Yankee right <laughs> no he's a okay Oh, okay. and uh, there was he also will be an Yankee by the end of the <laughs> okay, season. Right. And anyway. I also, you know, the, end of the season, end of this week. Yeah, oh yeah, he was a, he's a great third baseman. So, uh, what else in baseball, gentlemen? Is there anything interesting about the races? I see, I see that if, well, if the well, playoffs, the Nationals the, are in it. I mean, well, if the playoffs were today, it'd be Nats and Phillies, right, in the wild card. And potentially in the wild card, it's yeah. remarkable because just two weeks ago, sitting in this cha- sitting in your chair, we were talking about the the collapse of the Nationals, and it yeah. was really down to the Phillies and the Braves. And I had, I had observed that the Pythagorean win loss, uh, you know, runs scored, runs allowed, and their kind of uh, wins wins above replacement collectivity suggested they were much better than they were, well, as well as our I preseason see. expectations. Well, preseason, I, mean, I, I want to go back to the same stat I said last week: between forty two and forty six wins. There are 10 teams in right. the National League. So the only teams that are sort of eliminated, I'm not even sure they are, the Mets with 50 losses, the Marlins with 55, and I'm putting the Giants up, they have 48. All right, so yeah. there are a few more back. But, I mean, 
10 teams right. are between 42 and 46 losses. Any team puts in a good run, and they're in, they're, they're they're in. in the race. They're in. It, that's really American exciting. It's a little bit more spread out. It's a little bit more spread out. It's a little bit more spread out. Yeah, we've got a few more teams that we know are terrible. Right, I think in the in the American League. So, so, but there's also, by the way, the the it, it appears, you know, as you know, I think you will agree that it's probably still a coin flip, Shane, when it gets to the World Series. But you would argue that there are more top end teams in the American League than there are in the National. There League. There are, yeah. I mean, well, other than the, the Do- but only I mean, the one Dodgers, can come out of the, the American Do- League. Only right. one. I mean, only one. No, and I mean, like it was, it was kind of that way last year as well. I mean, the Red Sox really ran a gauntlet. I mean, having to go through. The, the Yankees and Astros and Dodgers, it, you know, was well, was, there, was there anything that happened over the major over the All Star break in the game or any of the the pseudo games around it that raised your interest in a team or you thought a player really flashed that you hadn't paid attention to or you think any insight to the to the race coming from coming out of that or no it was just circus it was it was enjoyable circus no, but I, I, it was circus I, okay yes. fine 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 yeah. I mean right. I, I you know I mean I. This is not really necessarily to do with anything, but we talked a little bit about the before the All Star Game about Mike Trout. I've tried to watch as much Mike Trout as I can, and it's just it's difficult to watch because he'll hit like you know. I mean, the game right before the All Star break, he two home runs, four four or five RBIs. Team lost anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's, That's a, good it's point. a tragic. You know, I it's, mean, it's, it's 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 tough to see that guy continue to be the best is, player in baseball. And Otani is playing well also. Yeah, yeah, it's just they they just don't have. A I'm dumbfounded team. that he signed. With, we resigned with well, them for the rest say. of his he, career. He yeah. made a choice there. Yeah, yep. no, that's right. That's right. I mean, I mean, and you know, things can change. In, living in L.A. for the rest of his life, hitting baseball is not such a bad life. Okay, no, but speak, speaking of which, speaking of which, how about reactions to Kawhi Leonard's decision? Oh, oh well, very actually, here's before we get into that. Apparently, the the baseball players are are complaining of being overshadowed by this basketball free agency, <laughs> and the observation is is it's because there's a, such a big gap between what they're worth and what they're paid, and so the decisions that they make. So Kawhi Leonard essentially is choosing yeah. to go somewhere. So yeah. so you know only a handful yes. of teams could have paid these giant contracts to Harper, to Machado, to to Trout, it, and and they chose to go in a combination yeah. of. of NBA is very different. But NBA is, is there. It's, and money's I, the same everywhere, so now you choose to yeah, pair no, up. And, and, so, and, and I mean, it must be the case that, like, you know, A, they've got this sort of free agency decision period seems to be very kind of condensed into, like, just yeah, a, a, a week or two yeah. as opposed to, like, the month that it takes baseball. And also... It must be no other sport would have kind of the odd, like kind of the, the the championship odds of teams change so dramatically based on free agent decisions, right? Right, right. true, right, right. right. because it's, it's so much more of the teams yeah, that are overhauled, I mean, so and one or two before, decisions before make getting your team. Leonard, and then obviously that led to them getting Paul George. Yeah, Clippers, Clippers were nothing, no chance. They would have had no chance to win the but, title. But look, the Raptors won, and now they're nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Up, Zippo, up, right. up, down. I mean, look at Cleveland. Down, they up, win. Down. They're I mean, gone. LeBron. Yeah. In some ways, I, I made this observation last week. In some ways, it's kind of refreshing because you get these obscure yeah. teams that bubble well, up. You could to, argue, right? I mean, like this kind of like very ill-posed question: Is this situation good for the sport? Right. You could argue it either I, way, I, exa- right? Exactly. We've, yeah. we've kind of lamented this in past yeah. years, and all of a sudden, I'm like, well, you know, I care about the Clippers now, and that's something. I cared a little bit about the Raptors last year. We forgot about the yeah. I mean, the volatility. In, I mean, NFL has parity in other ways. This is a kind of a longer term, lower frequency parity of sorts. Yeah, it's except like, for it privileges the coastal elites. 
It yes. does. Right? Yes. Are these, right. these towns that people want to live in. The part yeah, that, though, I guess, you know, indirectly having no salary cap also definitely does that in baseball as well. Yeah. The thought I that's thought, for the rich that's right. You asked about Kawhi Leonard's choice. The thing I liked about his choice is he chose not to, in some sense, join a super team. Like, if he had cre- joined the Lakers... Right. Then there's no team with three. Super team. So there's no team with three. Like, like the Warriors have had. There's for a no few years. team with three. And also, if he wins again, then he'll have done it with three different teams. Yeah. Where he'll probably maybe Paul George will be. He'll probably be the MVP again of the playoffs. I mean, th- you want to talk about cementing someone's legacy? If he were to That's win good. it with the Clippers, just his level in the pantheon of like yeah. NBA performance would. Ha- I mean, no one's Michael Jordan. No one's putting him on that level or anything. But You'd have to start saying that, you know, he beat the Warriors, he won with the Spurs, and they beat the Heat. Wasn't that the year they beat the Heat? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I, I kind of... I mean, him, if, if they win again, I mean, isn't... No, that's right. Start it's just that, like, I mean... Well, let's, yeah, let's wait until we see that happen before we count our, with our this, eggs. With his choice specifically <laughs> not to join the Lakers, I thought, you know, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about how the Lakers had no money to gra- sign anybody. How would, how would he have joined the Lakers, specifically? No, so they... They had one last spot. They had a max spot. I they see. actually, but let me just comment who they signed as a result instead. Yep. They signed Danny Green, Boogie Cousins. They signed Boogie. Cousins. They got okay. Boogie. Yeah. They got Javal McGee, Avery Bradley. He knows all these players no, no, inside I'm, and out. We no, don't no, really these know. These are all these well are all, known. These are all big yeah, time NBA players. Avery Bradley, Longhorn. Okay. Not only that, but Avery Bradley is a very. I mean, they ended up signing. Right, so let, Cole. They ended up signing a bunch of very let's accomplished cut to players. The chase. No, who do you think is going to win it? I like the Lakers. I like the Lakers because of the depth that they added behind. I used, I thought like like literally they had two men. They had thirteen right. open spots on their team. Now they've got a full roster of guys that I like and a we, lot. We know. Yeah. I like we, the Lakers. Shane likes the Lakers. Drama, he does. No, he has no you don't like the Lakers. <laughs> There's I, well, can you really bring in that many guys and also kind of you know strong personality guys and from scratch? But I don't know. I'm, I'm LeBron can. They have the, they have the entire well, season to figure that out. They will fall in line with LeBron. Yeah. But it's kind of it is refreshing. I mean, God love. The Golden State Warriors and the quality of ball they played, but I mean, really, really, really love them. But it's kind of refreshing to have a real race. Yeah, I mean, we have uncertainty a, about a, the a num- season. A number of teams that could yeah. do this thing, at least half but, a dozen. But until but, the Lakers roll through everything, and then we've got them for five years <laughs> in the same type of thing. There aren't many teams I like to hate. The only team I like to hate almost as the much Celtics. as the Yankees. Is the Lakers? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I could I could get on board for yeah, some good Lakers. I mean, hate I, I'm going to be for torn for the years. next few years, no matter what, because I I also hate the Lakers, um, but I really like LeBron. Yeah, and so that's that, that whole decision was right. just that's yeah. It was hard for you all those years with the Yankees because we know how much you love Jeter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, so I've suffered through the Yankees most of my life, as it turns out. All right, gentlemen. In the next half hour, delighted to welcome in Dr. Meredith Wills. Dr. Wills is a sports data scientist. She was previously an astrophysicist. Maybe if you're once an astrophysicist, always an astrophysicist, even if she's not practicing. She is now a sports data product specialist for sports media technology. Dr. Wills, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thank you for having me. We are delighted to have you. Where are you calling in from this morning? I am in the uh, the Bay Area, uh, although East Bay, so I'm out in Fremont. That's just north of San Jose. Wonderful. Appreciate it. And, Good uh, morning. It's your, early. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate you getting up quite this I, early. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, fortunately for you guys, uh, a real morning person, so I was not phased <laughs> at the hour. Wow. Well, that's that's great. We always appreciate it. But you do sound perk. You sound perkier than our West Coast she's, guests. She's definitely a morning look. Yeah, at, <laughs> especially in the 830 oh, this, slot. This is, this is, this is, I don't want 
want to say late in the morning for me, but it's not unusual for me to have been up for a couple hours by now. That's that's wonderful. Well, listen, we know that you work with The Athletic, which is a, a, a great organization, a great new sports media entity. And, in fact, your article with those guys about the baseball is what caught our attention. Adi Weiner, one of the co-hosts yep. here, was talking about it at some length a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, you know, the, 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 the controversy only grows. You, you got into a good space here, Dr. Wills, because the controversy only grows. We have one of the highest profile pitchers in the league really going going hard at this issue in the last couple of days with Verlander. We have the commissioner defending it, and then we watch 50% more home runs in the home run derby over the last the previous last record. So. Just just really really something. So we want to hear about your understanding. But based on your, you're the scientist here. You've done, you've carved into these things. You've run the test. In the end, what do you make of it? What can you tell us that you found and what's your position on this controversy? Well, let's see. First of all, the ball is different. Um, and when I say that the ball is different, we did have our home run surge in uh, 2017. Yes. Uh, one person I talked to actually referred to it as, I think, a slight bump in home runs, which kind of says it all. You know, now we're blasé about 2017 because this seems to be so much more dramatic. Right. And so the ball this year is quite literally different from everything that came before. What we're seeing is we're seeing a ball that has lower seams, flatter seams. Mm-hmm. And when I say flatter, I mean that they're half as high. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, it's, uh, we also, the ball itself has smoother leather, and then it's also rounder. And the rounder, I think, doesn't get focused on quite as much as it could, because what I found, I also looked at the 2017 home run surge, and in that case, what I found was that the most likely reason the ball was traveling more for that home run surge was because it was rounder than, say, the 2014 ball. This is a hilarious so concept, actually. For even rounder. Um, yeah, we're used go. to these. These yeah. We thought these spheres were pretty round to start with. Yes, yeah, so. I'm going to point out an observation. So a couple weeks ago, I caught a foul ball. Um, Bryce Harper, and I went back to my house, and I compared it to the last time I caught a foul ball, 1977, Jeff Burroughs. And I hold the I hold the two balls in my hand, and you can't tell the difference. Really? So from your 77. Well, I mean, it's an old. It's been sitting on my shelf for yeah. a while. But one one's a lot dustier than the other. I was looking at a 1981 last night with a colleague, so I'm surprised. That but well, what, what, real quick, remember, Dr. I'm not a scientist, so what, what I'm just holding is, them, and, and you know, you don't feel the seams; they don't seem so different, right? So what, when you saw the 81 that you were looking at with a colleague, what, mm-hmm. so you're not carving into it. You're just looking at it. What differences did oh, you well, see? Well, I mean, it was a World Series 81. I wasn't going to carve it. <laughs> no, you would not. Now, that's not that's I, disrespectful. I <laughs> but what what but, just um, as a just as just checking them out. Adi's saying he couldn't tell any difference. He's, he, I mean, there, there, there's lots of age differences, obviously. But if you try to feel right. the things that the roundness, I'm not going to see that. I, w- I would have oh, thought no, that no, you would the, know the seam height. The roundness is not going to be something that's perceptible by hand. Okay. Uh, you know, that you can't tell. That I actually, what we're talking about is a, per, a, a percentage difference that is on the order of like 1%. So it's like a millimeter type thing, mm-hmm. you know, because of the, the, the baseball. It's Baseball is like 70-something millimeters in diameter. But there are statistically significant differences. And for, say, the 2014 ball, uh, there you had a deviation of around a millimeter on average. 
for this fall, I kid you not, it's zero. Wow. <laughs> That's the average. It's, it's, I think it's minus 0.04%. So there, there's no deviation in the shape in terms of roundness. They've, they've gotten it's the machine, strange, the precision, yeah. the manufacturing precision is it's more down. or less perfect on now, that dimension. Now, is this, you think, in some function of the fact that MLB bought Rawlings and instituted better manufacturing processes so that they're just now making right. round balls when before right. there was a little they're random and boom, boom, boom. So right. that, that noise made them sufficiently deviant from round to add a, to take difference to it. Yeah, and, and uh, the question I kind of have is I, I don't know how much a millimeter extra roundness makes um in feet in, in like a distance of a whole like like how much more likely does that make the ball to be Good. a home run yeah. versus you know a long out and also is it really just about that individual ball or is it more just about you seem to be speaking also about the consistency between balls being right. a lot uh higher and so maybe it's just that all balls are kind of like th- that consistency leads to more home runs. I don't know. Right. Well, what what I guess there's a few questions in there. Um, first of all, as far as MLB having an impact, uh, when they bought the company, and even just in the last day or so, I found some additional quotes on the Rawlings side uh, that was that were very they were much more specific than what the official MLB statement was as far as MLB's very, very heavy involvement in the process. So MLB wanted to be, I think the phrase he used was in lockstep for every decision that was made about the ball. This was from the Rawlings uh, spokesman. And that basically is related to process improvement, quality control. Uh, Rawlings has always done process improvement. The reason I think the ball is rounder is not, how would I put this? Because of the process improvements that Rawlings always does, when I published these results back in September showing that roundness seemed to be leading to the 2017 home run surge, the reason that I that I postulated for why there was a difference to begin with had to do with lace thickness. Because what I found earlier was that the 2017 balls had substantially thicker laces, statistically significant difference. And the, the thicker laces were basically keeping the ball rounder because of the way they dry the baseballs at the very end of the process. Hmm. And that they air dry them, laces are made of cotton, wet cotton, when it's dried, stretched, stays stretched if it's air dried. The only way that you get it to return to its you know, normal shape, the way that we think of it, is you do the equivalent of throw it in a dryer. Mm-hmm. That's how your T-shirt always comes out looking nice after you've washed it is because you throw it in the dryer. Mm-hmm. So I think what may have happened is that uh, someone at Rawlings, because they're always trying to improve the process, saw this report and said, okay, the way we're doing this is making the balls deform slightly. So how do we get rid of that deformation? And, of course, in the article, what I'm saying is if you dry it under heat, you can get rid of this stretching. And so I think that may pretty much be what happened. So this is why the ball is rounder? Because yeah. it's been the, the cotton has been dried under heat as opposed to right. air dried. So, so literally, they've taken the equivalent of a hot air fan or a blow dryer or whatever, and are have that. I mean, obviously, 
I have not spoken to someone at Rawlings, but I have a fair bit of background in fiber arts in addition to the astrophysics and the baseball. And I cannot think of another way to make the laces not stretch. And what you also have to realize is that these laces on the 2019 ball are thinner. They're back to, say, 2014 thickness. And this is a big deal because up through the end of 2018, with the thicker laces, that was causing problems for pitchers. And there was this huge spike in the blisters. blisters. Yeah. So, so um, they've now gone, I mean, pitchers are getting blisters. They're now just getting different kinds of blisters so, uh, because the ball also has smoother leather. Now, by the way, every description that I'm giving you for the 2019 ball is a statistically significant difference. And right. that's a very big deal because with, you know, a couple minor exceptions that I found, when you go back, there are the balls are the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You cannot differentiate, you know, with any significance. Right. Uh, you know, things like size or roundness or whatever. Even the roundness thing I found previously was a trend. Now it is a statistically significant difference. Well, that's Got because it. you tested a lot of balls. Right. Well, but even even with the, I mean, in the case of the roundness, I had the same samples from my previous two, or the previous two samples from the study from last fall. I took a comparable number of, actually, I suppose there were more for the 2019 ball, but even if I'd done half of those, the numbers would not have changed. We're talking to Dr. Meredith Wells. She's a sports data scientist, formerly astrophysicist. She is well-known these days for wading into the controversy on the baseball. Base, are baseballs different, and are they contributing to the surges in home runs? Dr. Meredith Wells. By the way, she's a good Twitter follow, at, base, at BBL underscore astrophysics. At BB, Without the I. Without the I in astrophysics, yeah, that's it's, true. It's, 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 it's the, the last three letters are um, FCS. Got it. This so, was back when the character limits were worse. So <laughs> I apologize to everybody for a Twitter handle that is somewhat easier just to look up my name. That's right. That's exactly yes, right. Meredith Wills. And look for the link. So, so Dr. So. Wills, this is Eric Brown. I wanted to ask you a question that relates back to what Shane said earlier. So um, mm-hmm. I love physics i love science um, i'm a statistician but i also like effect sizes so i want to go back to shane's question how mm-hmm. big a difference are we talking about here are we talking about balls by the way i assume no one has mentioned these two words but is it wind resistance is that what the, uh, the greater roundness and yes, lower seams does but yeah. I, i'd like i'd like to hear dr will say it because he's a physicist but also how big an effect size are we talking about? Are we talking about 10 feet? Are we talking about the number of home runs would decrease by 0.1 a game? I mean, how much are we talking about here, has your, has your study found? Well, what I, what I should say, first of all, is that my study, I have, okay, let me back up. What's changed is that there's less drag. The aerodynamics are better on the new ball. The best way to describe that is that when you put the ball in play, you know, given exit velocity off the bat, it just doesn't slow down as quickly as it's traveling through the air. Because it doesn't slow down as quickly, it's able to travel further. So that's a good description of drag. And the lower the drag, the longer it takes to slow down. So that is going to extend how far a fly ball can go. Uh, as far as the the quantitative amount for the difference 
that's actually not something that I've looked at because that requires the kind of testing. That's that's a wind tunnel thing. That's a, you know, comparing those data to, say, simulation data, that kind of stuff. There is uh, there's some work being done by Barton Smith at Utah State that's looking into this a bit, and he and I have been corresponding, but that's in nascent stages. Yeah, yeah and I, I mean, I think what, what, what Eric's seizing on here... What yeah. we all seize on as statisticians is that mm-hmm. you can get kind of a statistically significant result, even if there's a very small effect size, especially if you have a large sample, as Audie suggested. But even more, what's really Low kind variance. of perhaps driving yeah. it is it's not so much that there's a big effect of any individual ball, but because they become so much more consistent in their process, there's mm-hmm. a lot less variation between balls, which will also help to dr- make even like a little like it could be that you know this this kind of seam issue like just mm-hmm. increases by like three feet the amount that a ball travels Say on average. But you know, but but because every ball is kind of consistently Perfect. that that yeah. extra three feet, it definitely is going to be statistically I mean, one, significant. One of the things, so, so yeah, go ahead. So is Alan there, Nathan has written about this. At, I'm mm-hmm. sure you know Alan. Um, and oh, yeah. he, he he turns it all into into essentially feet at sort of constant. So he'll say balls right. at a certain velocity, hit a certain angle. How much further exactly. is it going to go? And the previous ball change was about five to ten feet. I think that was his estimate right. in that range. And that's enough to mm-hmm. add, uh, not enough to add to explain all the home runs. That was one of the, his main points. It was enough to explain some of it, but not all of it. And what Actually, I want to put it in the only change that they, as I recall from the 2017 home runs sir, or the this the home run study. Looking at it, uh, my understanding was the ball did explain all of it. Not, I don't think it was all of it. Um, it was. It, it was it, well. It was the only thing that certainly showed any statistical significance, and it did within their uncertainties could explain all of it. As so, I so one, so one of the things that we began actually the com- the, the conversation that Kate mm-hmm. asked you is that we saw sure. ninety one extra home runs in the home run derby. I mean, those guys forget about just they are all they all play with. So I think it's well understood they play with juiced balls in the home in the home right. run derby. Right, I'm going to say that. That's so, not but they've always been doing that, and yeah. this is just oh, yeah. I mean, this is just a monument. Talk about effect size, yeah. massive increase in home runs. And if you just watch the way they swing, you yeah. clearly see a. a a, a fairly strong shift, and, and the younger players have mastered this yeah, quicker than I, anybody I, I, else. I don't think we. I, I guess I think what we're sort of saying is we wouldn't expect that these sort of physical changes would explain the entirety of the home run surge. I think in baseball because players are different now than they yeah. were five years ago as well. But, but, I'm, I'm, oh, oh, I, yeah. but, but guys, I'm also hearing that the exit velocity was more or less the same. So maybe the swing planes are different, but they're not. At, right. You know, exit velocity may be mm-hmm. up in general, but they're not. Apparently, home run derby exit velocity is well, the same. The ones that I've looked at are are, and actually, Jason Stark has a great article from the Athletic that that does bring up some wonderful numbers. Uh, Rob Arthur also did some stuff on exit velocity, and he he weighed in on this just in the last day or so. Exit velocities are very slightly up. However, it's hard to tell if it's a spike or an uptick just this year, or and, and again, this is in conversation with him. It sounds like it's just as likely that it's a Statcast calibration issue. Yeah, Uh-oh. and that over the years, because don't forget the tech's been getting better every year, and depending on how they choose to baseline, 
it may just be that it's finally hit a tipping point, but it's been going up steadily over time, as you're saying, because the players do get stronger. You know, they are, they train better, they're eating better, there's all that, um, and they've been doing it systematically for a while. So I'm not, I mean, yes, you're right, there are other contributing factors to home runs in general, where I'm interested is why has this year had a spike like this? Oh, it's enormous. And because I mean, otherwise you you would expect a some kind of gradual uptick, but changing, you'd also need something that's league-wide. So, so Dr. Rose, do you have any evidence, or has anybody looked, will pitchers benefit from this as well? A more consistent baseball that they can possibly locate better? You know, or oh, no, no, they I, hate it. They, yeah, they don't I, want, would, I would actually say it's detrimental. Uh, one exactly. that they can locate better. Why, if a pitcher has a more consistent ball, so the variation no, is taken out. Pitchers would hate consistency. They like surprise, right? No, it's, it's actually, it actually has nothing to do with consistency. Or well, the consistency is the problem because the way the ball is more consistent is not something that benefits pitchers because the it's become more smooth leather. in general, both right. the leather so and the seams, to, and right. so that it's makes it harder for pitchers to. And yeah, and then it's harder to get. When you know, so the grip itself is very likely causing problems with getting the spin rate up to what you want. Yeah. To begin with, and assuming you can get the spin rate up, then the lower seams just aren't going to enable the break, the ball to break as well. I see. It's, so, just, it's not going to grab the air as well. Can I ask one one so, question? Yeah. If if you were to change, suggest one change to the ball, what would it be? Uh, I would say stop smoothing the leather the way they are. Mm. There's no good reason. Uh, okay, great example is you've heard about AAA. Yeah. Now using the major league ball in AAA, and the numbers are up, what, at least 50? They're around 50%. Wow. I've heard anywhere from 44 to, like, 68. I like the 68 because it's like, look, it's a real standard deviation. This is awesome. Yeah, right. I think that might have been, like, one team. But anyway, so the um, the ball is flying out of AAA parks. And as I recall, the rate is comparable to last year's major league rate. And don't forget, these aren't major league hitters. You know, there's a reason. Or major league pitchers. They're they're still developing, but the the point being that you wouldn't expect them to hit as many home runs as major leaguers to begin with. And if they are suddenly hitting at what was last year's major league rate, that says a lot about the ball itself. Now, what you also have to realize, though, is in the minor leagues, they don't, like, replace the ball every three pitches. They use them over and over and over until, you know, the, the same ball that was a game ball becomes a batting practice ball. If it's, you know, in the dirt, it, it has to basically go into the stands mm-hmm. before they stop using it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they're really dinged up. Yet somehow they're flying out of ballparks at this insane rate. Now, if the leather is all scuffed up, but they're still flying out like that, that suggests to me that the leather smoothness is probably not the dominant factor for the home run. Mm-hmm. So why not just make the leather less, you know, back to the, the previous, you know, do the variations, go for it. But it's, it's not going to have an effect or as much of an effect on the home runs. And that way, at least the pitchers can grip the ball, even if they can't necessarily get the spin effect. Right. Interesting. Very nice. Yeah. All right. Listen, Dr. Meredith Wills, appreciate your joining us this morning. Appreciate the work that you're doing. 
We're going to hop away and take care of some business, but we're very thankful to have the chance to talk with you this morning. Great. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Dr. Meredith Wills, sports data scientist, former astrophysicist. She does independent research as well as working for sports data product specialist as a sports data product specialist for sports media technology. She writes about her work on The Athletic, great organization where you can follow some good sports writing. She writes for The Athletic. She has some pieces up there about the baseball. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Replayed multiple times over the course of the week. Also posted as a broadcast. Same day, later today, Danielle Bruno will put that up. Have a chance to listen to us on demand. Of course, you can listen to us on demand. SiriusXM app, great way to listen to us on demand anytime you'd like. Cade Massey hosting this morning. Whole crew has been in here. Shane Jensen is my only ally at the moment here to my right. Audie Weiner's off doing Wharton Moneyball Academy, which is a summer academy he runs with hundreds of students now. He's grown it every year. These are high school kids coming through, learning about basically learning about statistics through sports analytics. It's oh, it's new, an incredible opportunity. I mean, you know, you know, there's a lot of reasons I wish I will. I'm glad I wasn't. In, I'm not in high school right now. But this is one <laughs> reason I wish I was in high school right now. Eric stepped away as well, but he will be back in just a few minutes. We are just off the phone talking about the Major League Baseball, you know, the physics of Major League Baseball. So we're going to change gears a little bit, talk in this next half hour with Dan Hatman about football scouting. Dan's involved with an organization called the Scouting Academy, which is a neat new entrant into that world. Training scouts, essentially preparing people to be scouts in, in football. And we thought he'd be interesting to talk, not least because he's interested in bringing together traditional scouting methods with more advanced analytics scouting methods. So, Dan, good morning to you, and welcome to the show. Well, good morning to you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Where are you calling from this morning, Dan? I uh, live just outside of Albany, New York. All right. That's not, not too far. You've, 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 you've bounced around with a few teams over in this part of the world, so I guess we shouldn't be too surprised that you're still kind of in this part of the world. Is there a physical... No, I can't seem to leave the Northeast. Well, it's, there's good things, yeah. good reasons to be I'm here. I'm with you on that one. Um, Dan, where, where is the Scouting Academy located physically, and what does the physical part of it look like? We actually built this to be an online-based training program. Mm-hmm. Because you can't get two people these days to have the same schedule for very long. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to be able to interact with people on their timeline. Mm-hmm. And we've been blessed with this format. We've been able to work with people all over this country and in 18 other countries across the globe with this format. Mm-hmm. So tell me when when you got started and what group got together to get this thing off the ground? So the actually the idea was the genesis of this started when I was working for the Philadelphia Eagles. And I'd been with two college programs and three NFL teams at that point and noticed a chicken and egg problem, which was teams wanted to hire those that knew what to do. But the only place to learn what to do is with a team. Mm-hmm. And just didn't seem that that was the best way for either side. If you wanted to become an entrant into this community, it seems like every other industry has a way for you to apprentice and or go get an education and learn this. So you can discern, discern ahead of time. Do you like this work? Are you good at this work? 
So, so Dan, my, my, team side. Oh, go ahead. my impression uh, from uh, these days, I, I, I'm sure there are multiple routes in, but one route in for scouts these days is you come in and you're kind of a, uh, you know, assistant operations guy. You run errands, you hang around, you're kind of an aide of sorts. And then you kind of prove your chops. And if you're interested, you, you eventually get made, you know, an area scout somewhere. That's one route. And it is, you know, it's a slow route and it may not be the best training in the world, you know, to be running people to the airport um, as a way of earning your stripes. Is this, is this, has that been kind of the most common route? And, and if that's that, I can see why you could imagine there's a better on-ramp for that, for that profession. Yeah. I mean, the, the lowest entry point in is scouting assistant, which is exactly what you outlined more operations duties than scouting duties. Every team has one. Some teams have upwards of four uh, in that capacity. The, the thing is, even though it's an operational-based job, the the interview process, the, the process to decide who they want to bring on is always based around their scouting chops. Okay. Right? The idea being that Interesting. we okay. want to put people into those jobs that have this acumen, and in their, most teams' cases want people to have experience okay. working for some other team, college, another professional league, the Canadian league, the arena league, what have you. Okay. And then still put them in an operations role, still make them do the grunt work to prove that they love the space. And then we'll look at scouting efforts and promoting them from there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, even though they're operational jobs, they're still looking at people and wanting them to have experience and competency ahead of time. Okay. So you look around, you see this as an opportunity and maybe a contribution and you decide to get things off the ground. How long ago was this? And who did you, who did you lean on to help get this thing going? Uh, we officially hit our five year anniversary, but we're going into year six now. Okay. And this was again, something that always been taught to people in a room. So at first I had to figure out how do you teach this online? Mm-hmm. That took about nine months with a group of 15 people that wanted to learn this and I would teach them about the, the business and they would basically teach me what worked in terms of the learning format. Mm-hmm. Once I had uh, a curriculum that I thought was effective, that's when I went to the people I'd met in my time in the league and was blessed that we had former general managers like Jerry Angelo, former personnel directors like Lewis Riddick, had coaches like Mike Marks and Chris Palmer. And as we approached those guys and laid out the, the curriculum, they all universally wanted in. They wanted to teach the next generation oh, wow. and share what they had learned okay. and with their time in the business and usually specifically on certain positions. So with someone like uh, Mike Martz, who was a specialist with quarterback and wide receiver, those are the two positions he teaches mm-hmm. um, to share that insight with those that want to learn about it. Mm-hmm. And when you say teaching, what 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 does the teaching look like in this curriculum? Are we talking about we're talking about online video instruction essentially, and and and, and more concretely, what within one of those video instruction modules, what does it look like? So we have a couple different types of video lessons, everything from kind of lecture based, talking through the the high level points, all the way through um, where we've broken down film and shared the whole entire thought process through a game, everything that we're looking at. All that gets put up, and the student gets a chance to look at it. And then they get tasked with grading five players at each position. We pick out the players and the games we'd like them to look at. And then they actually have to submit their reports. And much like a, you know, I feel like, I feel like an English teacher with a red pen, Right. I'm grading those reports and providing written feedback. And then we do verbal feedback on one-on-one calls to really ensure that they're 
gaining a mastery of the fundamentals mm-hmm. in these areas and that they can effectively communicate their findings. So one of the things that one of the things that interests me about this is you have an opportunity because of the way you're training these guys, you have an opportunity to to kind of build you do this very systematically, I guess for lack of a better term. You, you know, it reminds me a little bit of it reminds me a little bit of like reading seismic data in the oil and gas industry, for example, or reading mammographies in in radiology where they the trouble with doing this real time in the world is that you make a judgment and you don't find out how it works out for years whether it's seismic data whether it's mammographies or whether it's football players you, if you if you read it, if you get a new candidate you read it and you don't get feedback for years and by the way you may not be around for the feedback it may not come back to you it may never be resolved but what they do in those industries is they build kind of training panels of known cases so that you can read and get feedback immediately and, of course, for learning, feedback is vital. And so this is a great way. It's accelerated feedback, essentially. You have an opportunity to do something like this. I'm assuming this is the kind of thing that you've done where you you build up a training panel. It's like you, you get to choose exactly what to show them, and then you get to see people's performance in this. And it's, now it's apples to apples across the students, for, for example. So I'm assuming this is the kind of thing you do. It's kind of exciting from an educational perspective. It's kind of exciting the opportunity you can create because you're focusing so exclusively on scouting development. Yeah, this was, you know, I, I came into it realizing I wanted to teach this information. We're about to do adult education, not something I was that familiar with. So I sat down with a professor at University of Connecticut, Robert Vernier, and had her kind of go through some methodologies in adult education. And so the first two weeks we do explain the why the 30,000 foot put tools in their belt. And then, you know, we kind of, push them off into the deep end, but having those feedback loops, like, let's go, let's get to work and make it very rigorous. Um, you know, this is not a, a football for dummies where, you know, we're just a degree mill. Everybody's going to come in and get a pat on the back and say, you're great at this. We want to be able to help identify candidates that are really worthy of moving forward in the profession, both for their sake and for the team's sake. So when a team calls and says, Hey, you know, we have an opening. Do you have anybody in mind? we can stand behind people and put them in a pipeline. Mm-hmm. So what is the what is the basis for that recommendation, essentially? So what is the for, for, what is the process? Someone shows up, they want to participate in your academy, and then best case, down the road, and I'm curious how long that road is, they end up getting a job. Some, and, and so what is take us through that cycle. And you say you want to make sure they're legitimate before you recommend them to a team. Does that mean you're washing some folks out? Does that mean you grade them on a curve? Like, what, is it, what does it mean to get an endorsement from Dan and the Scouting Academy? I tell everybody we probably have an attrition rate of about 40%. Okay. Meaning people that come in, we expose them to the life, the pay scales, the hours, the assignments, what have you, and they go, no, I, I don't. It was way more fun to watch it on my couch on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, than do right, that. right, right, right. So we tell everybody, you know, we tell candidates, we tell teams, we're, yes, we're going to reduce the number of resumes on your desk. Um, from there, we've had everything from former NFL players to people that have never put pads on. My favorite story to date is we had a 62-year-old pediatric surgeon really? come take the class. He was getting ready for retirement. He wanted to be smarter than his son's. On Sunday, Mark was fantastic. <laughs> Loved working with him. So hold on, he did that um, just to in, in deepen his appreciation just, of the game, just to be smarter than his sons on Sunday. Wow. No, no okay. career aspirations. But okay. uh, we had a great time working with him. And inside of each of those groups, so again, people have never put pads on. People that have played at the highest levels. We've had people really succeed. 
out of those groups, and we've had people completely bomb mm-hmm. out of those groups. And the, so I get asked a lot, you know, what's that common thread? What's the yeah, piece that sure. helps move this forward? We're all in the business of predicting the future. That's it. That's all really scouting is. We're going to look at past events and try to predict the future. It's no different than what people on the data side are trying to do. Because the only thing we care about, I don't care if you're building a team or you're building your fantasy team, we care about what happens next. Mm -hmm. What's this player going to do for my team next? And so it takes someone that cannot just look at outcomes. You know, uh, I always kind of joke with our guys that, you know, the drunk guy at the end of the bar can look at the outcome. The tackle was made. The catch was secured, what have you. But the person that can take that result and unpack it and determine why and when and where it happened such that we can use that and then predict if it'll happen again, that's evaluation. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. really what scouting comes into this. And so it's a lot about people with root cause analysis. You know, people that have those kind of skill sets, you know, I tell everybody no one was born knowing football. So if all football has been learned at some point in life, some people have an advantage if they have a legendary person around them that can teach it to them at a young age. They certainly have an accelerated track. But you can learn football at any point in your life. And then it's about putting it into practice and, again, unpacking outcomes to determine why those things occurred. Mm-hmm. Dan, that's, that's, uh, it's, it's great that you kind of bring up pro- both process and kind of data in the same sort of uh, conversation because obviously you've also – I'm going to just echo – Cades, that you have a tremendous opportunity here to kind of educate an entire cohort of kind of scouts across professional leagues and potentially infuse a lot more kind of data analytics into their, you know, kind of learning than you, you know, would just kind of naturally pervade through the scouting community without something like an academy. So I'm kind of curious on the kind of more data analytics side of things. Is that kind of a part of your curriculum? And how is it a part of your curriculum? Does it just sort of pervade each kind of like, you know, you know, kind of tight course that you have? Or are there separate kind of courses within your curriculum on statistics and data analytics? Uh, We are working on making a more robust course on this specifically. We want to increase the exposure to different data sets that are available to people in the space, different tools that can be used to assess them different technologies that are out there. So we've talked with groups like Telemetry, Sports Info Solutions, had conversations with groups like Zebra with the, you know, that provides the next-gen stat data um, about let's get what you do and how you do it in front of the next generation who's moving into this space because data and technology is not leaving football. It's only going to have a more robust footprint because it's been able to provide opportunities for teams to get competitive advantages. So right now, uh, we're not as robust as we want to be. We do have every student look through and try to identify key statistical measures that can help, again, predict future performance, Have push them to not just take the box score stats that are out there, drill down on a per snap basis, try to put things in context, and really use that to generate interesting questions. To me, that's where the sides can help each other. The film has limitations, much like any vertical in this space has limitations. It can't give every answer. Sometimes it just generates other questions that you can bring to the other groups in the building and have them answer for you. So with the film, for example, I love this story. We had a student a couple years back. He was, he'd left the course, he'd finished up. 
doing draft work for his own purposes. And he came across a corner playing in one double A or FCS bowl. And typically corners are aligned either left or right or field or boundary. And he calls me and he goes, I've never seen this before. I swear this player is being aligned on his team's sideline every, every play. <laughs> <Interesting>. <laughs> and furthermore, the, the camera angles aren't great, but I'm convinced his coaches are talking to him before each snap. Does that mean this player is lacking intelligence? And a lot of times my answer ends up being, well, it's plausible. But we don't know. We've got to find out. Right. We've got to test that. So... I look at the film myself, I see what he's seeing, and then I look up on staff, and I know somebody there, and I call up the person on staff, and I explain the whole thing, and they kind of chuckle. Yeah, I could see how he got to that question. He goes, no, actually, that was our, our smartest corner. See, we're FCS, we don't have helmet communication, we're still signaling everything from the sideline. Yeah. And we had had at least two of our coaches leave to go to other teams in our conference, so we were convinced some of our signals were compromised. So we would get him the coverage check, and he and the other DBs, like wind talker style, had figured out how to get it around the horn <laughs> without anybody wow. else knowing. That's a fun and, story, yeah. It was one of those anecdotes that I, I try to remember, I try to tell, because we have to have humility in any part of this, in that that film generated an interesting question, not an end result. You have to go investigate that. And that may be via coach or a teammate. And that may be your data science group to go through and, and look at whatever piece you're hitting a stumbling block on and see if they can generate a solution. And those questions should be being passed back and forth between the two. It really shouldn't be a competition. We should be helping each other because at the end of the day, we're trying to compete with 31 other clubs at the NFL level. And how are you gaining a sustainable edge? Well, you know, it should be it should be a real advantage for you. We were just talking about how how younger players in baseball are kind of performing and, and having a disproportionate amount of the success. It's kind of shocking how much, how well they're doing early. And one of the theories that Shane voiced earlier today was, look, that's pretty natural in an industry that's, that's evolving quickly because it selects out essentially, it selects in traits that are better suited. Also, it could be that um, it also identifies those who are more malleable and open for the tools that are available now. So you have a similar opportunity with this with scouting these days because it's not evolving as fast because there's culture kind of inhibiting it, but the opportunity for evolution is there and it will evolve and the tools are certainly evolving dramatically. And all of this is to say that very much in an analogy with with baseball, the the younger guys have an opportunity here given how new the tools are and it it might it might depend on people like you who are a little bit outside the establishment. You're you're drawing on resources from the establishment, but you're not the establishment. You're not an organization. You're not an actual NFL team to facilitate that. It seems like a real opportunity given the, the evolution and tools that are coming through right now. Yeah, and I mean, just to kind of follow up on, on, on that comment – um, have you kind of noticed, I mean, you, obviously the time frame is that you've been doing this is relatively short for this kind of, you know, a retrospective kind of viewpoint, but have you kind of noticed an evolution in kind of the cohorts that you've taken on in terms of like a growing interest in data analytics, a growing aptitude in data analytics um, in your academy? Yeah, we had an opportunity the uh, the Packers actually had a position open in that department a few months back and we were talking to somebody there and 
they ask the question, like, how many people do you have that would fit this background? And we'd, we'd like someone that has the football acumen so they can, again, create um, create more evidence-based information that becomes actionable, you know, and present it in that way that our football people can understand. And so I had a couple in mind, but I reached out into our alumni and, and put it out there, and we had 12 or 15 that had either a master's degree, really robust understanding of tools like R or had, you know, put um, presentations together for the big data bowl that they put on this year or tried to present to Sloan. And it was just, it was fantastic for me to see that and understand that it's certainly not everybody yet. Um, And, you know, we'll certainly always have people that really don't have that aptitude, but at least we want them to be open to it. But to find out that we have those who I call hybrids, that have these unique skill sets right. that overlap in multiple verticals. Right. Because I do see, I've always kind of envisioned this position of translator, the best way I can describe it. Yeah. This person that has enough understanding of each department so that they can help bring this information back and forth and ask questions sometimes in whatever language that particular department speaks in and help each other learn. So again, to get away from the contentiousness and into a more uh, overlapping environment. And these kind of people, I think, can really be game changers in that. Well, you know, it, it, I 100% agree, and I love the term translator. We talk about that in data science a fair bit, especially we're in a business school, so some of our some of our non-technical people can play that role if they get a little bit teched up. But in talking about it, it strikes me that you there's a whole there's a whole group of people who would would benefit from this kind of unexpectedly, and that is the analytics folks. So the, the folks who are already completely teched up and, and this would be a great way for them to differentiate themselves as they compete for jobs in analytics shops. The fact that they've been through the scouting Academy and they can talk the scouting language and, or at the very least they understand the enterprise better. I mean, that's, that would be an incredibly complimentary set of skills, even if it's not fully developed to, you know, R and Python. Oh, absolutely. I think that at this point in time, you really can't limit yourself to the hard or even soft skills that you're working on to bring to the table because it is going to be competitive. The the ownership groups are always reevaluating the landscape. Um, They kind of ebb and flow. There's some people that lead the pack and some people that follow in that. But as you see programs like New England and Philadelphia – who have been more open about using all the resources available. Right. Not only does Philadelphia have one of the best analytics departments, but they also funded and staffed one of the best scouting departments right. in the league the last right. three, four years. And so when you have ownership groups that are like, listen, I just want edge, like, let's go. Right. And if, if people start to follow that, yeah, there's, there's tremendous opportunity for people that, again, are not coming up as a one-trick pony. Right. They really look to kind of broaden their horizons. And again, really be able to pull from all these different places. Like if you go, you know, right there at Wharton, if you go get an MBA, they're going to teach you how to interact with all those verticals. You're not going to be the expert in each one of those, but you're going to know how to manage, interact, talk to, evaluate, onboard. I mean, picture trying to be a general manager. If you have no understanding of data science. Right. And your owner says, listen, the next gen stat data's coming into May. Who do we have to manage that? You're going, well, you don't have anybody. You're either hiring a third party to do it or now you have to evaluate and hire someone to do that in-house 
and you don't know how to compare right. and contrast the different sure. candidates. But Dan, this really does suggest so, that you've got a, you've got, you know, I don't, you know, you've got probably a lot of opportunities you could develop and margins you can push, but building out some analytics training for the traditional scouts could be a real nice way to compliment those guys. And I mean, look, you've got a chance to blend, you've got a chance to blend these in a way that most 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 institutions don't. It's it's really neat. We're talking to Dan Hatman, by the way. Dan is the founder and one of the chief developers there at the Scouting Academy. His enterprise is to bring people into the world of football scouting, getting them up to speed, gearing them up for jobs in organizations. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at Dan underscore Hatman, at Dan underscore Hatman. Dan's calling in from outside Albany, this morning, listen a couple couple of details that I'm curious about before we lose you at the bottom of the hour. One, we talked about soft skills. One of the most important aspects of scouting is understanding player character or makeup, and this is a harder thing I assume to train. And, and um, I'm curious how you go. What 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 does that part of the training look like for you guys? Yeah, that's really where we have a limitation because in order to get that information, you have to start working sources going to campuses, talking to the player, talking to their coaches, their teammates, their high school guidance counselor, and working through that. So we actually built out an area scouting class. Mm-hmm. So from July through December for six months, we take people that have already taken our film class, the master's class for us, and say, all right, let's put you in the field. Hmm. And so these men and women will actually go out, not on a day-to-day basis, but go out uh, once a month and go to a school nearby Mm -hmm. and work that process and start to get that exposure. And again, it's not going to be mastery in six months. Very few things are, but at least have them live it so they can start to discern which parts of it they need to build up. Yeah, right. And it's all based on trust, right? When you're getting that kind of information, the college program in this particular case, they have no incentive to trash their own players. Mm Mm-hmm actually hurts their recruiting Mm -hmm. the best thing for their recruiting is to get all their players taken as high as humanly possible right this is a real problem yep so i always tell people the easiest thing that a scouting department does evaluate the tape everything after that gets exponentially harder because evaluating the tape is determining the football part what can and can they not do as it pertains to football i call that evaluation after that we have to determine what that profile's worth in a marketplace i call that valuation and when we're going to talk about valuation, now we do have to talk medical and character. Mm-hmm. And again, that profiles development curve and what we might have to do infrastructure-wise to bring them along. Mm-hmm. And all those things are way more nebulous to create whatever that market value is going to be as position trends change. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time where 215-pound safety was a liability. Right. Now, all of a sudden, they're a, they're something everybody wants. Right. You know, the six-foot-two corner was kind of tossed out as they can't move. Then after Seattle got started with it, all of a sudden for three years, if you were six foot two and played corner, you were guaranteed top fifty pick. Like, let's go. Yeah, this is interesting. So, this is a real challenge for you guys, I would think. The non stationarity of it, you know, especially since you're oh, absolutely. you're building these 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 modules which are static. I mean, by 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 definition, they're, you're going to create this thing that's fixed and you run it again and again. Well, you've got to modify that thing periodically, mm-hmm. right? It's really it's an interesting thing. Listen, a couple other specifics. You said men and women. What what kind of what kind of interest are you drawing from women? Again, it feels like you, as a bit of an outsider, have an opportunity to provide a, a doorway 
to groups that might not have that opportunity. You know, that if, if this is a good old boys network, here's maybe a, a side door for those who aren't good old boys. Yeah, we, we have uh, at least one female candidate every semester. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually just had one of our alumni. She's going to go work for the Senior Bowl itself, mm-hmm. scout players for them. Uh, Kathleen's going to be a star when she gets her shot. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I think there's there's opportunity for anybody that wants to pursue this you know, and put that forward. You, know, you asked before about kind of what teams are looking for. I always hear from teams who want passion and work ethic. So, okay, I'm going to tell everybody right now, they want passion and work ethic. Then as we've talked about for the last few minutes, what else do you got? What else do you bring to the table? Mm-hmm. And so for those that are continuing to add to their tool belt and adding that competency before you have to go prove it, it allows you to hit the ground running. And so we feel like our track record, we have had 18 people go into NFL teams as scouting assistants. 15 of them have been promoted to full-time already. Oh, wow. And so I think that ability to, again, be ahead of the pack because you can hit the ground running. When I got in with the Giants, I mean, I was treading water. I mean, barely keeping my head up up there because I didn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, right. And you learn on the job. I understand that we can talk about learning on the job, but that's not the best opportunity for the team if the work has to be impactful. If the work is changing the nature of the outcomes of the front office, then why do you learn on the job? You should have some kind of separate space for that person to be able to fail without it negatively impacting the organization to bring them along and then put them in a pipeline when they're ready. Yeah, that's interesting. So we kind of go by that model. Yep. Listen, Dan, really appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning. What you're doing is fascinating and valuable, and we really wish you the best with all the work you got. Thank you so much, guys. Absolutely. Dan Hatman with the Scouting Academy. They are preparing scouts. They're helping people get into the world of football scouting. And interesting little enterprise they've got off the ground here in the last few years. Dan Hatman. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan underscore Hatman. We've just got a couple minutes before we go to breaks, guys. What, what was your reaction? Eric just walked back in, but Eric missed most of it. Shane, listen, I feel like I don't – I feel like I was a little bit more of an advocate for a guest than I usually am just because I love the enterprise. Yeah. And I'm not sure – I'm not sure as a – I don't know anything about that as a business model, but in terms of a service and an opportunity. Yeah, and I, I mean I think I, I, we kind of talked a little bit about this in, in our conversation with them. But, I mean, again, the opportunity – I mean because one thing that we keep running up against, especially with – with football is this kind of, you know, the data analytics and these kind of, you know, new advents have, I guess, gained limited traction because there's a real culture specifically in football, I, I think, against change and again against evolution. Um, and this is a real opportunity to kind of get more people kind of comfortable with using data analytics as part of their process and maybe with changing kind of, you know, technologies as well as changing strategies and you could have a whole cohort of people that are right. now going out I, I think it if anything it could kind of speed up essentially the evolution of the sport and this mm-hmm. change of culture by having kind of this 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 academy where people can kind of get a little bit more advanced training from mm-hmm. the outside mm-hmm. what did you say about the, the I, I didn't know but until halfway through the conversation yeah. that there's this other flip on it. it's like it'd be a great way for an analyst to distinguish themselves from other candidates to yes. go in and do that kind of scouting training. Yeah. I mean, no, look, when we when teams post for analysts these days, they get hundreds of people. They get a dozen like super qualified, highly connected people. This is how yeah. competitive it is. I think none of those people are coming in with like football no, scouting. No, you can be experience. like a data analyst like a scouting hybrid type type of 
portfolio. I mean, that's got to be tremendously, val- you know, twice as valuable as as, as well, either one on its own. Well, let me ask you guys a question. Do you think there's a day at which, you know, um, let's call it big data analytics and artificial intelligence doesn't replace scouting, but allows what I would call the large mass scale let's call it prioritization of you have to look at this 15 seconds of video of this person because, you know, a supervised learning method based on video and now artificial intelligence that can consume this video and kind of score it in real time says this is a key 15 seconds to look at. I would love if yeah, that day happens because I would really, imagine yeah. you go to the FBI right now. And that's what they're doing, right? They have cameras and video all over the world looking for dangerous things. And they're rank ordering them and scoring them in large-scale real time. Why can't this be done for scouting? Well, it's an interesting question, and and it raises the question that I'd be curious to get you guys to hypothesize about. What would be those moments? If you had to guess, I mean, look, you're talking about coming up with it through, you know, machine learning processes. But if you had to guess, so for example, and we're running a little bit, we're going to run this real quick and then go to break. But for example, one of the ways teams have looked at players in the past is they've looked at some of their best moments. Like this, this is them at their best. Yeah. There's the clips of like, there's almost a highlight reel of players. And it strikes me that that is kind of exactly wrong. Like you right. don't want to know the highlight reels of the guys. You want basically you want it's a sample. You want a you want a random sample, but that's not very efficient. And so, how do you reconcile those two things? And so Eric say, well, maybe there's some high leverage moments, but I don't know what they would be. Yeah, and I mean maybe the you one thing you kind of talked about there is the random samples are too inefficient because you just can't represent all the possible contingencies with like a random sample. But you could get some. You, you could use data analytics to not just get a random sample, but get kind of like a, a, a sample that contains representation from a lot of okay. kind of the variety okay. of kind of cases that you want a quarterback to deal with, right? Okay. Like, for example, like you could like say like, oh, well, we're, we're going to get, you know, we want 10 clips of this quarterback with a perfect pocket. We want 10 clips of this quarterback right. where the co- pocket's right. completely dissolved. Right. We want 10 clips of this okay. quarterback where his first couple targets was taken away. Right. You know, stuff like this. You can really kind of like not necessarily get a random sample, but get a real representative sample of the population of situations a particular player will face. And just to me, in five seconds, to me, I would want to know how somebody performs in high leverage moments. And to me, because that's what separates, like when I look at Tom Brady, it's not just that he's great, but he's great when it really matters. And that's, to me, what I would want to look. Identify those moments and score people in those moments. And I would add against the best competition probably because these guys, especially in college these guys play against very different levels of competition Great point. And surely yeah. surely is more diagnostic all right fellas we are just off the phone with dan hatman running the scouting academy getting people into the world of football scouting fascinating enterprise he's got going on up there we have open lines here for the last 20 minutes or so 15 minutes we got a few topics just a few to hit Quickly, we got some tennis going on still. We're rolling into the last week of Wimbledon, right? This time next week, we'll have two new champions. Uh, we, we are? Two more individual Two champions. more individual <laughs> champions. We don't know if they're new or not. Uh, at the moment, it, well, there will be a new women's champion, because last year's women's champion got has been eliminated. That was Angie Kerber, who beat Serena Williams in the finals last year. Uh, when I was when I'm looking at Wimbledon now, I keep thinking, you know, as you guys know, there's been the big three. If you want to include Andy Murray, the big four on the men's side, and now I've come up to a reason. You know, Adi always talks about in basketball, three is greater than two, and we know exactly how much more three is greater than two. In tennis, it's three is greater than one, and here's what I mean. I think we all agree Serena Williams has been the most dominant force in maybe any sport, but certainly yeah. in tennis. 
But after that, it's hard to name a second great player that's been playing now. So to beat, to I guess win, that's what it means to be so dominant. No, no, right? but I, no, 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 but but in men's side, there's been three dominant players. Yeah. So let's take a very good player who's not yet won a major, but has been to two finals, who's playing today, Kei Nishikori. He's the number eight player in the world, a very fine player. Okay, for him to win Wimbledon, he has to beat Federer, then Nadal. And then Djokovic. Okay. <laughs> right. So, you know, let me just finish. So for, let's say, Barbara Strykova, who's in the women's draw still, for her to win Wimbledon, she has to beat Serena Williams, and then whoever wins the other side of the draw. As a matter of fact, none of the top six women's seeds even made it to the quarterfinals. Yeah. Not through the quarterfinals, even made it there. Serena happens to be ranked 11th right now, and so she's the 11th seed. So I'm thinking... Someone says, when are the young guns going to come up in the men's side of the tennis? Yeah, it must be. All a, right. Well, it must look like got, a buzzsaw right now yeah. for those young men I mean, trying to come up. Maybe yeah. you're right. Could today, could Sam Query, who beat Djokovic three years ago at Wimbledon, could he beat Nadal? Absolutely. Then you better beat Federer, and then you better yeah. beat Djokovic in the finals. So to win on the men's side... Three is greater than one. There's one great woman you have to beat, and maybe someone beats her before you. And on the men's side, you got to get through. And I'm not even including Andy Murray, Stan Wawrinka, yeah. Del Potro, these other guys that are all major winners. You just can't win a major if, on the men's side. You have to beat no. all three of them, and it's just not going to happen. No, and I mean, I guess it is sort of where it's such an interesting time that we kind of are sort of they have these th- these three historically great tennis players. Let's be clear: you know? the top three majors, number of majors all time, are Federer with twenty, Nadal with eighteen, and Djokovic with fifteen, and they're all playing active yeah. right now. So it's not like well, like I've taken it's not like I've cherry picked. These are the three greatest women winning champions of all time. It seems so right unlikely now. that that would happen. Yeah, I mean, just like literally mathematically, it's, it's unlikely that given that they have to beat each other to do it. I mean, they, that no one else is winning, clearly, if the three greatest of all time are playing at the same time. Yeah, yeah I mean, literally, I mean, I think Stan Wawrinka has... Poor Wawrinka, exactly. Wawrinka, yeah. well, poor Wawrinka has three majors. Poor Andy Murray has three majors. Del Potro has one. But essentially, that's it. Yeah. I mean, in other words, 50-something, 50 53 of the last, like, 60 majors on the men's side that's have ex- been won by these three guys. Yeah, and so, again, that's, so that's what's sticking out to me at Wimbledon is... I don't know who it's well, going to be, but it's going to be one of those three. I mean, yeah, maybe only you could do this off the top of your head. How many women have won majors in the time that Serena's been So the, around? the, the last stat I saw Serena was, and I, Venus, right, I guess, I think together. something the following is true. I may, Matt can correct me. Like, of the last 10 female, 10 majors on the women's side, there's nine different winners. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that is a pretty big and so, difference. And okay. so it's a pretty big difference between the men's and women's side. A huge difference because, of course, Serena has, you know, she had a child. She was out for a while. She hasn't come back fully. It's been wide open. You take Serena Williams out of the picture. as no, By the way, she's fully in the picture in this Wimbledon. But you take, she's in the semis. You take her out of the picture. Anybody could win yeah. on the women's side. And, and by the way, the data supports that. All right. So other British major sporting events coming up. Next week. So just after Wimbledon, we'll roll into the Open. Where is it Where is it this year? Royal Potrush is the name of the course that oh, it's at. Oh, is Ireland? Oh, my goodness. We're jumping over to Ireland for the British Open. So this is – it's a very exciting time because it's uh, it's it's known as a just a brutal course, just absolutely 
brutal. And, and uh, this is to hear the this is by British standards, right? By British <laughs> standards, the where the course already is already kind of brutal. brutal. Look, the big thing that, and I know Kate and I are equally upset about this. Like next week is whatever July fifteenth, sixteenth, and that's it. Yeah. The majors are I'm over sad. for I'm the sad. year. No, I mean I'm just saying the Masters was in April. Yeah, this is July. And we're done. Yeah. Like then it goes. I'd say the silly season, but like, all right. So who's going to win the FedEx Championship? I can't. All right. I mean, could, I could, could this? I, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I echo exactly what you guys are saying. Even from from a even more casual fan, right? I, I, I'm more prone to just tune in for the majors. It could lead to an increase in prominence of some of these quote unquote silly seasons. Well, do you know what? You know right? how yeah, they? Sure. I know we talk on this show a lot about uh, tournament design. You guys know how they changed the FedEx Cup this year, right? I've never paid any remind attention me, to the Remind me. Well, let me remind you what it used to be, and then I'll tell you how it changed. So the top 125 people would play the first event, and then you get some number of points, and then through the season and through the event, then the top 100 qualify to the next one, then the top 70 qualify for the next one, and then finally the final 40 so qualify on, but, for the last one. By the way, are these sequential? And this is over a month. They are sequential. Directly I mean, like, in a like row, directly next to each other. Yes, and a player can skip one if if he already has enough points, like to make the yeah, top right, forty or thirty. It might be thirty. He can say, "Look, I'm already like I'm I make it up. I'm uh, Dustin Johnson. I don't need to play these yeah. other ones because I'm in the top 30. And by the way, just remember, Tiger Woods last way, year won that last event, yeah. but he he didn't be, get ahead of Justin Rose to win the so whole. So they just need to kind of snaz this up, well, here's put what, it in a, some cool location. Stop calling it like the FedEx Cup because who's going to get excited about <laughs> well, that? Let me tell you what they did. Hey, I'm, you with, might, I'm with Shane. I want yeah. those changes and especially the location. Call it like the Palmer Invitational or something. Well, they already know, have like, that. Make it, make it they cool. already have one of those. But well, okay. Let me tell you what they've done instead now, and I'm I'm going to butcher this somewhat, but not in its spirit. Let's say you start out 125th this year. You start out 10 strokes back. If you're 100th, you start out 8 strokes back. Like, literally, the scoreboard doesn't start everybody at zero. And this is even for for all of these events. All of these events. So then who advances is not – there's not this point system. They're like – fans like to look at the leaderboard and not figure out points and who got this. They would just want to know – you know, Cade Massey starts out. Yeah. Who cares where you start out? At the end of this tournament, Cade's a plus six. Yeah, this other guy's a plus three. So they literally assign you, and, based on your position at the start, to some number over par, and then you advance based which, on that. Presumably, it's as close a translation as they wanted to do to the point system before. It's just that, a more transparent. Correct. You okay. can yeah. literally look at the leaderboard and know who's going to advance. That's you don't have to wonder. No, I, li- I, I like the design. I think they just need to kind of make it more kind of a snazzy must-watch kind of... Where do you want them to play? And where are they playing? Oh, they should... uh, Different countries every time. Every week a different country? Yeah. But is it worldwide? No. Well, yeah, I mean... It's it's entirely played at U.S. locations. But it's in U.S. players. No, no, no. It's worldwide. But the points are accrued probably on the PGA. Well, that's... That's another issue. There are some points. Well, certainly the British Open is, uh, is yeah, well, that's part that's of the PGA. You're right. I'm sorry. PGA. It's, no, no, it is part of the PGA. It is entirely points in the PGA Tour. Yeah. No, so, I, I'd, I'd, I'd have. Uh, um, they'd work it out so that the time zones were right. What, what, one in one in Japan, one in the UK, <laughs> and one East Coast, one West Coast, or something like that. In the US. Okay, it's neat, right? but that's more international than they're going to do, especially week to week to week. But you could do ah. East Coast, West Coast, Mexico, and Canada. I think if you 
think Come about Come on, these guys can handle. I mean, maybe space out the Japan one for. You, they could space it out a little bit. We're talking silly season, right? Yeah. They can spread it out. They can spread, it. but the whole idea is, you know, now that the majors, are, whether, yeah. whether it was the players like this, is now that the majors are out of the way, they can go into the silly season between. Okay. But the problem is, the silly season then lasts from July until the Masters yeah, again yeah, in April. Right, it's right. a long silly yeah, season. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm just saying that. Yeah, I mean, maybe there'll be pushback from the, you know, players that their silly, you know, their silly season's got reduced. I'm just trying to make it a little bit more. The point intense. also again is, example, Tiger Woods I, I like again. The, I, I if, if this, I don't know what's on the over under sheet coming from Matt, but if Tiger Woods top ten again, I mean, I'd like to think it, but again, he has not played. They yeah. asked him after the uh, U.S. Open, which he did well in the final round. They asked him, "Are you going to play before the British Open?" He goes, "Yeah, I'll be playing at home." <laughs> He's out playing. Yeah, I'll play. I'm going to play in my, you know, I'll play in my yard in my home course. So World Series of Poker down to three hundred and fifty. We've got a former NFLer. In we there. do. So Rich, I've been following his second career. Um, I'm trying to ignore his first career. Huh. Um, Richard Seymour, big what defensive a, a end, glorious right? defensive first, end, first career defensive yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. Defensive yeah. end, but yeah. I mean Hall of Fame quality potentially. Defensive oh, he's going in the Hall of Fame. Okay, so definite. So. I remember he, seeing interviews with him six, seven years ago where he was talking about using what he calls his training, his focus, to move into a second career. And for him, he's chosen professional poker. So you see him like on TV and playing the big major tournaments now. It's The, you, the World Series of Poker, just for people that don't know, you pay $10,000 to buy in. Anybody can buy in. Eric Bradlow could decide next year he wants to go play. Eric Bradlow has 10000 Eric Bradlow plays. It's roughly around 84, 8,500 players. Um... 15% of the players that sign up are what's called in the money, which means you make money on the tournament. Um, they're now down to 350 players. So let's just do a little math. We're already down to the top 4% of the players left. He's in that 4%. Not as he in that 4%, but he's got the 35th largest chip stack of the 350 remaining. So he's in the top one half of 1% right yeah. now of players remaining. It's and amazing. He's, you know, in extraordinarily good shape. And again, um, the wonderful thing about this event is, and this is, you know, the first time it ever happened was in 2003. This guy, and I'm not making up the guy's name, the guy's name was Chris Moneymaker. That just happened to be his name. He was the first, literally, nobody to win the yeah, World Series of Poker. Yeah, that and that's when it went from like 2,000 entrants to like 8,000 entrants because, you know, as they say, you got a chip and a dollar, you get a seat right, too. Right, right. And. So that, no, that, no a, it's very impressive. I hope he is as good at poker as he was at football because he was very good at football. So, guys, we're taking the corner. We've just, just got a, a few minutes left. It's Warden Moneyball's Over Under. So, Matty D has put out a good list for us today. Oh, I, it, I know which one Eric's going for. Yeah, it's pretty clear. Pretty clear, sadly. No, you don't know. Uh, well, you, the, the, you think the top one right <laughs> no, the now? Right, right at the bottom. <laughs> Oh, well, I'll be happy to talk about Actually, it's a perfect segue. So yeah. let, since um, since Cade normally throws the over-under to me, I want to say a few things about the hot dog eating contest. And <laughs> But let me say what I want. I know Cade hates it when I talk about this. I but love there's, it. I love there's it. two things I just want to talk about, the one that just happened last Thursday. It was on July 4th. Um, first, it has nothing to do with hot dogs. It more has to do with exceedance. And what I mean by that is Joey Chestnut, who now won, he's won for, I think it's 12 years out of the last 13 it's either 11 out of 12 or 12 out of 13. He ate 71 hot dogs. Now, that wasn't the record. He had had the record the previous year at 74, but that's not the important point. The next closest competitor was 48 hot dogs. Now, the reason I bring that up is 
I understand you could describe this as a sport, not a sport, whoever you want. He's so much better yep. than everybody else that regardless of whether you think it's a real sport, it should be covered or not. When you have somebody in an event where there's lot, you know, people are trying to qualify, there's regional qualifying. Let's say there's thousands of competitive eaters trying to make it. When I mean, 48 would have been his best 20 years ago. And so he's that much better than yeah. everybody else. I and, mean, it, it, it. I guess what's the what's the sports? It's like you know, your, Tiger, Tiger winning no, the U.S. Open by like no, 15 no, strokes. I thought or you were going like to Mr. Red Sox hat. I thought you were going to say Pedro Martinez year. I mean, isn't that considered one of the greatest pitching years in the history of baseball? It is, but I don't think the exceedance over the second place. I mean, the ex- it, it, the exceedance over the second place person in terms of standard deviations or something like that. I don't think would be quite as high as this. Well, all, that but, was the one I mean, thing. That would be the other thing I wanted at. to talk about was the uh, you know I texted you guys that I may have you know if one were to wager yeah. one might want to take the under and it had to do with the heat of the day. It was ninety three degrees that day. My I think I yeah. told you guys my middle son was Zach was at the event. Oh. He texted me that morning and said, Dad, I've never been so hot in my life. It's 93 and humid out here in Coney Island. Bet the under. He goes, there has to be an effect of heat. And let me just comment. I was texting you guys during the event. Joey Chestnut, it's a 10-minute event. He ate 50 hot dogs in the first five minutes and 21 in the second five I minutes. I support your love of uh, the hot dog eating competition. But I'm much more the than Cade, but I would not stand outside 90 plus weather to watch people gorge themselves for 10 minutes. I'm that just, is, all I'm commenting on is a broader topic yeah, than the hot yeah, dog eating. Yeah. Exceedances. Let's give the guy some prep. No. Okay, let's give the guy some prop for doing this. Anyway, yeah, no, I agree. Hot dogs. It's relevant. Over under. I'll start with Shane over-under. Jensen. Yeah. 70 and a half next year. Over under, and I don't get to know the temperature on the day, so you I can't don't. factor that in. But I am going to say under. I think Joey Chestnut is. Uh, I don't know what age trajectory is like. In, he's in thirty six now, but he's thirty six. He sounds like he's old for hot dog eating, and I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna project a little bit of a trajectory downwards for the rest of his career. Also, if his competition can't even eat 50 hot dogs, why is the guy going to have to go? I mean, That's he's gonna, another thing. He so can hold off. Over under, 70 and a half. I'm protesting and not voting on this one. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go over because I think he's, right. I'm going to go over. Yeah. Um, let's go on to the NBA quickly. Uh, 0.5 LA teams in the finals. So you got the Clippers or the Lakers to choose from. And by the way, thanks to uh, Matt Datz, he's got even a little stat that comes next to it. Based on the odds right now, they'd be at 53%. So it's really right on the knife edge. So I'll start with Cade Massey. Is one of the L.A. teams the Western representative in the finals? I mean, intu- intuition is so strongly this way, I want to resist it. But um, the way to resist it would be to unpack the alternatives. And so the alternatives are obviously the Warriors. Houston. The Rockets. Denver Nuggets. Decent team. Exactly. Utah. Um, so you need to really unpack that before you make a judgment. But I'm happy to go with the over on this. Uh, those two teams are going to be str- tough to overcome. I'm taking the over as well. I think it'll be one of those two teams. And I'll, I also take the over. Okay. Maybe the last one. Uh, the last one will be about tennis. Um, 0.5 sets that Djokovic drops after today. We don't even have to say after today's match. I'm watching right now. He's absolutely destroying the guy he's playing. <laughs> he's not losing any sets in today's match. Um does Djokovic lose any sets? Point five. Does he lose any sets going? He's not going to lose. I mean, he's playing either Pella or Big Batista Agu in the next round, and then Nadal or Federer. I'm, I'm going I to go first. I go first. I think he goes. 
I think he loses more than a half a set. I think, as a matter of fact, I'm not convinced he's going to beat Nadal mm-hmm. or Federer in the final. So I'm going over. I'm going to take the over, too. I think Nadal and Fe- I think he does win Wimbledon, but I think Nadal or Federer could take a set out of that guy easily. So I, yeah, we're not doing interesting ones here, but I'm going to go over as well. I'm, I'm, I agree with Eric that he might actually lose the match. Well, there we are. Those are some interesting over-unders. You didn't find the hot dog one one, but I'm, I promise I will not speak about hot dogs again for the next 51 weeks, but I will say exceedances and the effect of age and temperature are broad statistical topics that aren't just about hot dogs. And I got to talk about hot dogs again. <laughs> that has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do this every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. You guys can join us in the future. Give us a ring. We're always happy to hear from you. You can hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyball. Great way to reach out. Many thanks from the whole crew here. We had everybody in at some point today, most for the whole thing. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Cade Massey, and Audie Weiner. Many thanks to Matt Datz, the boss man around here, and Danielle Bruno. Dion Simpkins in the back, spiritual support, pound of the bonbons. Always happy to have the man involved. Come back around next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.